gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp, and Rachel Miller is my co-host, and we're kind of continuing series that we've been working on with talking about some of the essential doctrines of the Christian faith and um, some of the things surrounding that. And one of what we're going to talk about today is the Holy Spirit. And I think there's so many misunderstandings about the Holy Spirit. I think especially now um, when you have the Pentecostal movement and a lot of charismatic stuff. And I think that some of that stuff is filtered into um, even our circles to some degree is there's there's kind of this idea of the Holy Spirit where there's this kind of mysterious thing and I think people kind of see like the Father and the Son and then the Holy Spirit over here you know instead of really understanding the doctrine of the Trinity I will say if you haven't listened to our episode with um, with Glenn Butner on, on we talked about eternal subordination but we also talked about the doctrine of the Trinity on that on that episode. And I, I also think that there's a lot overlooked on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes a charismatic person will say to me, oh, you reformed people, you discount the work of the Holy Spirit. But I actually think that we have a greater understanding and focus on the work of the Holy Spirit uh, and His work in us. You know, it's interesting that you uh, referenced our, our talk with Glenn on eternal subordination. Um, it was during that discussion, as it was really heating up uh, a few summers ago, that I realized that all the discussion centered around the Father and the Son, and almost never did anyone bring up the Holy Spirit or the role of the Spirit. And you know, even in, and then, excuse me, in the discussions that followed about um, the the purpose of good works and final salvation versus you know initial justification final justification all of that that debate that happened 
Um, and you know, to be clear, we've talked about this before, we believe that there is salvation, we are justified, we are being sanctified, we will be glorified, but there is not a, a final uh, justification or final salvation that is based on our works, right? So, in all of these discussions, I felt like the Spirit was missing. Um, <laughs> the only one thing that I remember hearing about the Spirit being discussed in the eternal subordination debates was that one of the guys who is pro-ESS had said that the if the father is like the husband of the family and the son is like the wife of the family and then the spirit is like the child or the children of the family. That's awful. It was so <laughs> awful. And I re- looked at it thinking, why go there, right? I mean, this is really not the place. It, I mean, it is kind of a natural outcome when you start where they're starting, but it was so awful. Yeah, it, it reminds me of that video that we talk about all the time with um, – Lutheran satire, mm-hmm. That's you know, trying to, mm-hmm. yeah, trying to use these different analogies to describe the Trinity. Mm-hmm. And you know what? The, they don't work. The clover doesn't work to describe the Trinity. All of them ha- will have some sort of Trinitarian error. Right, exactly. So, you know, I think that the Spirit is often overlooked and is often um, not considered in our discussions and I think there is some fear of of like um, charismatic or Pentecostalism creeping in if we we talk about the work of the Spirit, but I think that really is a misunderstanding of who the Spirit is and what the Spirit does. Um, I read several things as I was getting ready for this discuss- ready for this discussion, and some of the links will be will have um, at the end of the the show notes, but. Um, you know, Michael Horton wrote a book, Rediscovering the Holy Spirit, and he wrote it, if you, if you read the intro, um, partly as a result of the Trinity debates and the ESS and the overlooking of the Spirit. And He talked about how uh, the Reformation brought about a renewed interest in the Holy Spirit. His, uh, the quote that I liked was, The Reformed Confessions and Catechisms give a prominent place to the wor- person and the work of the Spirit. And in another article that I read, uh, the article quoted Edwin Palmer uh, on the Holy Spirit. It was the Church of the Reformation that gave great impetus to the study of the Spirit. The Reformers, in opposition to Rome's theories, stressed not that the Church was necessary for a correct interpretation of the Bible, but rather the Holy Spirit illuminating man's mind. Likewise, in opposing Rome's teaching that the priest was essential in applying to man the unbloody sacrifice of Christ in the Mass, Luther and Calvin set forth the necessity of the Holy Spirit in applying the sacrifice of Christ in our lives. But it was chiefly Calvin's rediscovery of the biblical doctrine of sovereign grace that demanded a heavy emphasis on the Holy Spirit. For Calvin stressed the total depravity of man and unconditional election. This meant, naturally, that if God were to implement his sovereign election, then the Holy Spirit must work powerfully in the lives of the elect. That's a great quote. And you think of... um you know, what, what scripture says, I think of Ephesians 2, where it says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And that picture, I mean, I think that God uses that because we understand what it means to be dead. A dead man is hopeless. A dead man can do nothing. And then it says, but he made us alive in Christ. And we see the Spirit's work in bringing us to Christ, in, um, in, in giving us faith, and just... Um, so much of what of what the Spirit does in us to bring us to salvation. I think what Rachel said um, was talking about 
the quote from Horton about going to the Reformed um, standards that are confessions and catechisms. If you want to understand the work of the Spirit, that is a really great place to start because there's a lot uh, about the Trinity in there in each one of the persons of the Trinity. So one of the, the links that we'll, we'll include was something that I found from uh, Westminster, California uh, website that has, uh, it was from a conference, and it, it gives all of the references to the Spirit uh, and the Spirit's work in the um, Westminster Standards and the Bible verses that are associated by topic. And I, I found that to be really helpful. Anyone who might want to study that, that was very useful. And we'll include that in the episode notes. And I, I sometimes feel like people see the Holy Spirit as, almost think of mysticism, you know, that he, that he does some sort of mystical work, mm-hmm. that we can't really understand the Holy Spirit or his work. And, you know, that he, he gives a, like the primary thing that you see focused on is, you know, he gives us some sort of emotion or, you know, whispers little messages in our ears about what we're supposed to do. So let's start with talking about who who is the Holy Spirit. And like I said, I would definitely go back and listen to our episode with Glenn Butner if you haven't, because I think understanding the Trinity in general is so important. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's not some force or power, but he's also not some impersonal thing. You know, we almost talk about even in worship, we talk about the Father and the Son. We we don't think about, you know, the the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And I know in Michael Horton's book, he was even talking about the the song that some of us sing in church. You know, glory be to the Father and to the Son. And you know, it's talking about each person of the Trinity. There, I think even in worship, we think about the Father and the Son, and not necessarily when we worship. We need to think of all the members of the Trinity, not just the Father and the Son, which I think we think of the Spirit in worship, but we think almost not in that we worship the Trinity, we worship the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, but um, that we, I think sometimes people just think like, he's doing something to us in that, which is true, because we talk about word and sacrament and the Spirit's work, but they, it's almost a, I think a wrong, wrong view of what exactly um, the Spirit is in worship. Yeah, you see it sometimes more in a sense of like the the, the spirit is, you know, a a feeling or an emotion, or a power. Right. Uh, you know, almost like, you know, the the Star Wars, you know, the force that unites us. You know, that it's that right. that very mystical idea, right? And you know, the spirit is God, right? He is a person of the Trinity. He's not an it. Right, he's not just that yes. that quiet inner voice that we have. That we it's actually our own desires. Although he does speak to us, right, in the sense of he he uh, illuminates the scriptures as we read them. He works in our hearts to make us more like Christ. Right, so you know we do have a conscience that can be pricked by the Spirit to yes. to do things. But that inner monologue that we have is not not really him. You know, that's not what's going right. on. You know. Right, like I think I think God told me that I should right um, go and do do this thing. We had seen um, I forget even what the episode was, but Angela and I were talking. Oh, I think it was when we talked about mysticism, mm-hmm. and she 
we had seen something where the girl's like, you know, God tells me uh, what color eyeshadow I should wear each day. That That's not a thing. You know, he's not whispering to you, wear the blue eyeshadow today. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, it was something we found. But there is stuff out there like that. Yeah. Well... Right. And I can't, I was just thinking of how, how paralyzing it could be to, to listen for that voice to make any decision, right? Like, of course, we want, we want to be faithful, and we want to do what God would have us to do, right? But, you know, my son's looking at going to college, and he's not going to sit down and listen for the Spirit to tell him which one is the right one, right? You know, we're, we will pray about yes. it, we'll, we'll pray for guidance and, and um you know, that understanding and wisdom. And, but then ultimately, he's going to have to make a decision right. based on that. And that's true for everything in our lives. We have to make decisions based on what we know to be true and what we believe to be right in the particular, you know, within the, the guidelines of Scripture, what we believe to be right to do. Yeah, and I'm just going to mention right here, we'll probably talk about this maybe a little bit more when we talk about the work of the Holy Spirit, but I think this is one of the misunderstandings that's come out where um, when we think about God's will and your example of your son choosing a college, and I'm in that place too, where my son is going to be choosing a college soon, where we think the Spirit's work is when we have these questions and we're not sure the answer to them, that we have to seek the Spirit to get some sort of message. Um, And people, there's people that will even pray, you know, um, Lord, if you want me to go to University of Colorado, make it rain tomorrow, you know, and they think this is somehow the the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's not how it works. Like what Rachel said, understanding the will of God is we move forward and we move forward with wisdom and we do things like seek counsel. There's wisdom in many counselors. I'm sure that your son and and you and your husband will talk to people. Um, and, you know, so there's different things that we do in, in seeking this will, but there's not some sort of secret will of God that we have to get some special message right. from the Holy Spirit. So, um, one of the things we had talked about before was the Nicene Creed, and uh, that's another good place to go, because when we're talking about the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, uh, that that's where we look to see these are the things that have been agreed upon. And um, the the Nicene Creed says, We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and Son, who with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. The Nicene is so rich, and there is so much that we can can gather from it, right? to, To call the Holy Spirit Lord is to say that He is God, right? To say that He is equal in power and glory and majesty with the Father and the Son, that He is worthy of worship. Um, you know, and to say that He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and you know, that gets into, you know, that there is there is differentiation between the persons of the Trinity. You know, the Father, and this, we see this in the Westminster Confession, right, that the Father is not begotten or proceeding, and the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son, right? So this speaks of who they are, and particularly we see it. We'll see some of the differences in how each work in uh, the in creation, and especially in the redemption, and uh, that we'll get to in in, in a little bit. But um, what's really striking to me, we talk about going to the Reformed creeds and confessions, and we, we read from the Nicene, which is one of the oldest of those 
uh, of the creeds. The Westminster Confession uh, says much of the same thing that we see in the Nicene, and the Heidelberg, too, continues um, to talk about what we need to believe concerning the Spirit. And the question 53 says that the answer is, first, He, the Spirit, is together with the Father and the Son, true and eternal God. Second, He has also given to me to make me, by true faith, share in Christ and all His benefits, to comfort me and to remain with me forever. So, you see in that one as well, you see the the unity that He is with the Father and the Son, but you see specifically what the Spirit does uh, in the life of the believer and in redemption. And I think the the, the point that He's eternal is very important, mm-hmm. because I think some people uh, don't understand that. They think that it's something that, that only came at a certain point in the New Testament, um, instead of understanding that the Spirit is eternal. You see Him from the beginning, and we'll, we'll get to this, yep. you know, in, at creation in Genesis 1, you know, the Spirit is there and mentioned. Throughout the scripture, you can see the Spirit mentioned and the work that He does. So, we're going to talk about what what does the Holy Spirit do, and this is this is so important to talk about because of what I mentioned earlier, where I've had people message me um, that have come into the Facebook group, maybe been charismatic, or and say, you put the Spirit in a box. You discount the work of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's important to understand all that we know that the Spirit does. A great quote from, from Michael Horton in his book, The Christian Faith, in every external work of the Godhead, the Father is the source, the Son is the mediator, and the Spirit is the one who brings about the intended effect. That is a great way to understand, um, you know, the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Throughout um, Horton's book on rediscovering the Spirit, Holy Spirit, he talks about it in, in terms of, you know, like, the access we have to the Father is through the Son and by the Spirit. So, over and over again, you see that through the Son, by the Spirit. And um, like in, in Calvin's Institutes, he says, uh, this distinction is that the Father, to the Father is attributed the beginning of action, the fountain and source of all things. <clears throat> to the Son, wisdom, counsel, and arrangement in action, while the energy and efficacy of action is assigned to the Spirit. And you know, Horton sums that up as, the Spirit is the person of the Godhead who brings everything to completion. The Spirit changes everything. We're referencing Horton's book, and I highly recommend it, mm-hmm. because I read it when it first came out, and it was it was very helpful for me. Um, I'm not sure, do you know, Rachel, because I think you've done some research, um, if there's any other books on the Holy Spirit? Um, there's one by Sinclair Ferguson, too, that's often reference. Okay. I haven't read it. And I will say that Calvin's Institutes does have some good stuff because um, when I read through different parts of Calvin's Institutes, I ran into some some great stuff. And of course, you just uh, quoted one of those right there. Yeah. Um, some of the things I, I read talks about, uh, there are a number of people that talk about, you know, Calvin as the theologian of the Holy Spirit. There's there's a lot of reference to the Holy Spirit in, in the work that Calvin did. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit um, about you know just some of those 
things, you know, we talked more specifically right there when Rachel was talking about access to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. And and um, the quote from Michael Horton that um, the Father's the source, the Son, the mediator, and the Spirit one is the one who bring about the intended effect. So one of the things that we think of the Spirit's work is in the writing of scriptures, in um, guiding the, the men that wrote down the Word of God. And we see that in Second uh, Peter 1, 20, 21, that says, But we know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Uh, we also see in Second Timothy three sixteen and 17, these verses that should likely be familiar uh, to our listeners, but all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And that several of the, the translations, the literal there on inspired by God is God breathed or breathed by God. That is almost always a reference to the work of the Spirit. So in West, is Westminster Confession of Faith, mm-hmm. 1 5 uh, says, Our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. And I'm reminded of what we talked about in our last episode about assurance. Mm -hmm. And we talked about that. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in us when, when we have that confidence of um, our faith and um, the assurance that Christ is for us, that his work is for us. Um, that is another work of the Holy Spirit, and if you, I know that we talked about in there that sometimes you struggle, might struggle with that, um, but the Lord is working in us, sanctifying us, um, working in us that we may have assurance. One of the things that I think is really important to remember about the Spirit and the work with the Scripture, and so what we've mentioned here, is not only was he did he have a hand in the the writing of scripture and we talk about that he he spoke through the prophets right we also see that he illuminates scripture for us he helps us understand the meaning of scripture um first corinthians 2 10 says for to us god revealed them through the spirit for the spirit searches all things even the depths of god uh, the westminster confession in section one on scripture says, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. And that would be when we talk about like the difference between common grace and special grace, common you know, the common revelation, like what we see in the world, and special revelation, what has to be revealed to us is revealed to us by by the Spirit working in us. Um, and I think that's you know, very important for us to remember this key work of the Spirit in our lives to that we can understand what Scripture teaches. That's an excellent, excellent point. One of the things we, we can do is, in the episode notes, is I will put some of the sections from the Westminster's got quite a bit, and um, Heidelberg also that um, apply to the Holy Spirit. Westminster Confession of Faith 110, the supreme judge by which all... Con- Controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. So, you had mentioned earlier, Rachel, has is 
um, the Lord's, the Holy Spirit working in us to illuminate Scripture to us, to give us understanding. And this is where what the, the Reformers were saying is that you know, the, the ultimate standard is not what the church teaches or not what the church, what tradition says. The ultimate standard that we're held to is the Spirit speaking through Scripture. Yeah, and I think uh, one of the things that you see sometimes is people will think that, you know, they're getting specific little messages from God. And I've seen before where people will think that they got some message for God that is not even consistent with Scripture. Those are not messages from God. Um, they they become subjective, and what what we know about God is not subjective. I'm going to say, what is the, the quote about that, that if, you know, what do we need to hear a new word from God on something? Because either if it's consistent with Scripture, it's redundant, right? And if it's inconsistent with Scripture, then, you know, it's 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 wrong, right? <laughs> right. So, I'm not using the, the wording correctly from the quote, but, you know, that's the, the gist of it. And it's been really popular, especially, you know, since books like... Um, Jesus Calling. Jesus Calling, and, you know, several others, several of the, the popular um, authors, especially authors that are um, geared to speaking to women. Yeah, the quote is from John Owen. It said, if private revelations agree with Scripture, they are needless, and if they disagree, they are false. Yeah. And And that's a great point. And one of the problems is that you'll have people that think they're getting messages from God and they're not getting the same messages, right. you know? Um, I mentioned before that it was more than one guy at Bible college said that God told them that they were supposed to marry me. Well, I'm pretty sure God didn't tell. Well, obviously, I didn't marry any of them. So, so one, of the, one of the places that we see that Rachel mentioned earlier is in the work of creation. Genesis 1-2, the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So this is a great verse to see that the Spirit um, has been always. You also see in the work of redemption, uh, this, the work of the Spirit in redemption, um, you see it in you know, Luke 1, where Luke comes, or um, Gideon, I'm going to mess up my whole thing today. Where Gabriel comes to speak to Mary, and he tells her that she will conceive uh, the Savior, but she will conceive by the Spirit. And you know, there is a, there are a lot of parallels in what he says to her to you know the creation. Right? That the Spirit will move over her; and she will be overshadowed by the Spirit for in this this new thing, you know, the the conception of this of the Savior. But throughout Luke 1, you see the Spirit at work. You see that uh, there's a promise that John would be filled by the Spirit. You see uh, that Elizabeth is filled by the Spirit when she hears Mary's voice. And Zacharias is filled by the Spirit after John's birth and prophesies. So, over and over again, you see these this work of the Spirit. Um, and it's easy to kind of overlook it, but if you start paying attention to the places that the Spirit is mentioned, it's frequently in several passages, or it's frequent in several passages. You could, well, you can even take a concordance, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes I'll do that when I'm studying something like this, and just look for spirit and go through and see how much of the spirit is mentioned. Yes. Um, and we talk about 
we said in the, the Westminster and the other like Heidelberg, you see over and over again the places where the Spirit is at work. And one in the work of redemption, uh, in the Westminster Confession, chapter 3, it says, uh, They who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by His Spirit, working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by His power through faith unto salvation. So, throughout the Scripture and throughout the, the confession and the, and the discussion of the work of the Spirit, it talks about us being called by the Spirit. We are quickened and renewed by the Spirit. The Spirit unites us to Christ and applies the work of Christ to us. We're justified, adopted, sanctified by the Spirit, which you know gets us into how the Spirit is at work in the life of the believer. Those of us that believe in God's sovereignty and salvation, the Spirit is at work to bring about all of those things. When I was talking about Ephesians 2, it's He, he takes dead men and makes them alive in Christ. All of those things that we discuss, which Rachel just mentioned, you know, being justified and adopted and sanctified, and all of those things are works of the Holy Spirit in us. I was thinking about this just this week. It's when I feel conviction of sin. That is a work of the of the Holy Spirit in me. Um, the The Spirit makes us willing and able to believe. You know what I was just talking about. You see that uh, the passage in Ezekiel thirty six where God promises and says, "I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh." I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will care, be careful to observe my ordinances. The spirit is at work in us and he makes us willing and able to believe, as, as Colleen said. And I think that's important. Um, you know, We talked about this with uh, justification, sanctification. We talked to John Fonville and the work of the spirit there um, and the, the difference between scriptural um, the scriptural uh, approach to, to good works and you know their place in the life of the believer and how the Spirit is at work in us, not to save us through our good works, but to make us want to, as this Ezekiel passage says, to want to follow and to be able to, to follow God's, um, God's law and God's um, commandments for our lives. So, faith is the work of the Spirit. Westminster Confession of Faith 14.1 says, The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. And so, we talk sometimes about all of salvation being of the Lord at every point. And even if you look at the um, the solas of the Reformation. So, uh, at every point. So that means when we come to faith, that is the work of the Spirit. It's not because we got smart, decided to muster up some sort of faith. Uh, it is, it's the work of the Holy Spirit that gives us faith and brings us to faith. And then the same is true of good works. And we've talked about this quite a bit when we were talking about law and gospel and justification and sanctification. We aren't sanctifying ourselves because we're getting enough strength to do good works. We're doing good works because the Lord is at work in us. So Westminster Confession of Faith 16.3 says, Their ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ. 
and that they may be enabled thereunto, besides the graces they have already received. There is a required, I'm sorry, there is required an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them, to will and to do of his good pleasure. And we've talked about our, how our good works are, are fruit and evidence, and that's the Lord, that's the Spirit working in us that we would do good works. Absolutely. And there is such a debate, especially right now, about the the purpose of our good works and, and how they, um, what they mean for us as believers. And, you know, as it says here, you know, this, the Spirit is the one who works in us so that we want to do them and so that when we do them, that the, any good that's in them is because of Him. Um, we also see that uh, perseverance is by the Spirit and... Uh, the Westminster Confession teaches that this perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of the election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit, and the seed of God within them. So you see, our perseverance is uh, the result, it's, it's Trinitarian, that it's from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in us. The spirits at work in us. One of the things we see in um, Ephesians four thirty that sin grieves the spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Um, and then earlier we talked about assurance by the Spirit. So Romans eight fifteen, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Uh, you know, we talked in our last episode about assurance. And assurance truly is a work of the Spirit. The Spirit works in us and, you know, and in also in enabling us to do, to do good works in, in changing our heart and making it a heart of flesh that is tender to the Word, illuminating to us the, the words of Scripture. Um, this assurance is from the Spirit. And we see there's a couple different quotes that I found. One is from uh, Reformer Martin Bucer, his catechism, and it says, What is the chief work of the Holy Spirit in you? That he assures me absolutely of the promises of a gracious God, so that from the heart and with a true childlike confidence, I can recognize and call on God as my Father through our Lord Jesus Christ and can say, Abba, dear Father. Therefore, St. Paul calls him the seal of the elect with whom God seals them and marks them for eternal life. In uh, Calvin's, I think it's its first catechism, he says, Faith is the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit by which our minds are illumined and our hearts confirmed in a sure persuasion within, which establishes that God's truth is so sure that he cannot but supply what he has promised he will do by his holy word. On this account, it is also called a pledge, which establishes in our hearts the assurance of divine truth, and a seal whereby our hearts will be sealed unto the day of the Lord. For he it is who testifies to our spirit that God is Father to us, and we in turn are his children. So, one thing that we do is pray with the help of the Spirit. I think we had talked before, I don't know if, it, I think it may have been privately, Rachel, um, just about prayer you know what, um, sometimes what, what words do I have when, I, when I'm praying? And 
Um, Romans 8.26, and I find comfort in this, in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That That's extremely encouraging to me. And I think about um, the the Spirit's work. Well, actually, let's, let's talk about just even worship for a minute. And we talk about the sacraments being the means of grace. And the Spirit is at work in those sacraments. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. And the spirit is at work um, at us, I think, even in the word preached, um, he's illuminating us to understand, and and in the sacraments, being means of grace, where he's at work in the sacraments. The Heidelberg says in question 65, the since then, faith alone makes us share in Christ and all his benefits. Where does this faith come from? And the answer, from the Holy Spirit, who works it in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel and strengthens it by the use of the sacraments. Um, and, you know, we've, we've talked before, and, you know, it's very clear throughout uh, the, the information or the um, catechisms from the Reformation uh, that we're not talking about something magical in the water that we were baptized with. It's not something, um, you know, mystical in, in the, the elements themselves, in the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine. The grace that is applied to us is because the Spirit is at work in us through those things, right? That, that is the, um, the power, that is the, the way it strengthens us, that, it, that comes from the Spirit and His work in us, not, you know, from the, the water or the bread and the wine in themselves. Yeah, I think this one um, is one I've thought about a lot and that He's comforter. In John fourteen sixteen through 17, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper and He may be with you forever. That is a spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And I think, Rachel, you and I can both attest to the Spirit's work in us through trials, through sufferings, the comfort that he brings in the most difficult of sufferings that we've been through. And we see if you read all a lot of the verses on suffering, um, it talks about the Lord working in us through suffering, and that is the Spirit's work in us, whether it's comfort and peace um, or a variety of other just being sanctified through difficult times that we're going through. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, looking over this list, and, and there are more that we could have covered, but it, it's clear to me uh, when you look at it that despite those who think that the Spirit isn't given His due by the Reformers. There is so much that uh, we talk about about the work of the Spirit and what He has, what He does for us as believers um, throughout Scripture, throughout uh, discussed throughout the, the Reformed catechisms and creeds. It's it's really remarkable when you start to look at it how how many references there are. It is and. When we consider the fact that the Spirit is at work in us at every point, whether it's from um, bringing us to Christ, sanctifying us, 
working in us through suffering and trials, the, the Spirit is at work. So I know that when the topic of the Spirit comes up, there's going to be questions about the gifts of the Spirit, baptism of the Spirit, especially, and then also we're going to talk just briefly about kind of cessationism or continu- continuationism. So real quick, I think sometimes when we're talking about cessationism, there's some confusion, at least in my mind, I kind of think of a couple of different things. So first of all, cessationism is, um, or the other side would be continuationism, but cessationism is the belief that, um, that the miraculous sign gifts have ceased. And so that is prophecy, healing, um, and tongues. And um, we did an episode on cessationism, which I can link in the episode notes, because there is kind of some different types of cessationism. There's a type where people believe there's no miracles today whatsoever. And then there's another type, and I believe this is what Calvin held to, where there's still miracles. Um, there may still be miracles, but no one is gifted, doesn't have a spiritual gift to be able to heal or to prophesy. And I think uh, one of the things that often comes up in this discussion, which I I think really, while it's often part of the cessationism, continuationism debate, I think it's slightly, I see it more as mysticism, is this idea that God is, you know, giving us special little uh, messages, you know, about what boy to marry or house to buy or job to take. I think that um, having studied that some, I think a lot of that came out of kind of the Christian and Catholic mysticism movement, although it's all, you'll often see it with, in charismatic circles, they kind of end up being combined a little bit. I thought it was helpful I, I, in, in looking at this. I, I pulled, and we have it linked here, there's a, a pastoral letter that was written in the early days of the PCA on the issue of spiritual gifts. Um, and you know, the point is that spiritual gifts are not there's not a, a second blessing that only certain, um, you know, particularly spiritually good Christians get with us with this, um, you know, full measure of the Spirit. All Christians are blessed with the full blessing of the Spirit. Um, and what you see in this pastoral letter, it says, spiritual gifts are granted to every believer by the Holy Spirit who apportions to each Christian individually as he wills. Christians are to use these gifts to serve Christ in the work of this kingdom and for the edification of the body of Christ. All true believers receive some spiritual gift or gifts. No spiritual gift is to be despised nor is to be misused to bring glory to any other than to Christ. And you can see it lists some passages where you can mention spiritual gifts and Romans and 1 Corinthians and Ephesians. And it says, Some spiritual gifts plainly have ceased, such as the founding office of apostle. Others are obscure and cannot be clearly defined, such as helps. Others are clearly seen today, such as teaching and giving. Some have received undue prominence in recent days, such as tongues, working miracles, and healings. And this is what we mentioned. Um, you know, there are a variety of gifts from the Spirit. Um and we see it talks about in a couple different passages how we are all those gifts are meant to work together, as it says, for the body, um, as a blessing and edification for the church. But the the ones that Colleen mentioned, the miraculous healings, prophecy, and speaking in tongues as gifts, uh, were I think I've heard them called attesting miracles, attesting gifts. 
that have ceased with the end of the apostolic era. And, you know, prophecy has ceased. And I think the, the other gifts that serve their purpose, and certainly there are times today that people are healed miraculously. There are times today that uh, someone might have a particular um, gift in, in learning foreign languages and translating scriptures. But these particular gifts as, as miracles, um, I think, have, have certainly ceased um, since the time of the Apostles. Yeah, they those those get gifts had specific purposes at specific times in the story of redemption, and um, you know Rachel was talking about they attested to the truth of the message, and they were they were for the benefit of of the church of the whole of the whole body. And I'll mention real quick because I know there's sometimes discussions about what tongues was. Um, and you see a lot of times in, in Pentecostalism today, it's really come to be some sort of ecstatic utterance, um, some angelic, I don't know if they would call it like some sort of like secret language. Um, and um, I don't think that that's what tongues was. And when I researched that quite a while ago, that kind of ecstatic utterance that a lot of people think of as tongues today was actually practiced in Gnosticism in the early church. And believe it or not, it was practiced in Mormonism, in early Mormonism. And so when we're talking about tongues, somebody this is somebody would know a language that they did not they did not learn. Um, it was that sort of miraculous tongue. Kind of touch on this, but uh, you'll see sometimes in like Pentecostalism, they'll believe in this baptism of the Holy Spirit that will come about. Um, you know, when someone's baptized with the Holy Spirit, then they can speak in this, you know, these ecstatic utterances. Right. And I think the, the best information there, and you see it in Scripture too, and the gifts were meant to be for the edification of the church. If someone is speaking in a language that no one understands and cannot be benefited by, the, there's not much use in building up the church through this. Right? Um, it doesn't seem to serve the purpose uh, that, you know, it, it, it served a purpose for, you know, when Peter spoke on the day of Pentecost and everyone who was there heard what he said in their own language. You know, that was, that was useful. It was a blessing. Um, but the other is more, is less clearly so. Well, one of the things I wanted to mention, because sometimes people will say, well, are you saying that God can't do such and such? Okay, well, God can do everything, anything God wants to do. Um, but God has told us how he works. And he has told us in his word how he works. And one, one of the things that people often say to me, well, are you saying God can't do that? Is in regards to God giving us private messages in our head or whispering them to us or that sort of thing. But I can't find any, I mean, they'll, they'll um, use verses like the one about the still small voice and, or, you know, some of those out of context, but I can't find anything in scripture that points to God giving us private messages as a normative part of the Christian life. It, it's just not there. God has not said that that is how he's going to work. The number of times that God spoke to someone are are actually pretty small throughout Scripture. Yes, considering the number of people who were believers and the number of people who were spoken to, and even in their lives, the number of times they were spoken to, it it was a small number. Um, 
Yeah, and it was a big deal, and it was for the benefit of the whole church. It, and it wasn't things like, you know, you should wear the pink eyeshadow today. So, And uh, another thing um, is the is the fruits of the Spirit. And uh, the fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. That That is another way in, in which we see... Um, the the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So what I know that you talked a little bit about this, Rachel, but I'll I'll get I'll get your thoughts. Sometimes people will have. I grew up with this, so I don't know if you ever saw this growing up. But the spiritual gift test. Oh yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's wrong to look at or try to figure out how the Lord has gifted you, um, so that you can use your gifts. Um, to the best of your abilities in the church, right? Um, I think it is more useful to talk to people who know you and who know your walk and see where they see your gifts and how you might be used. Because uh, I think a lot of times we're, you know, we, we know kind of what we want to do or what we think we want to do or we're not aware of, you know, how we've, we could be useful. And other people see it in us. Um, so I think that that's a way of, of kind of figuring out where you fit and what you might be useful, how you might be useful, uh, or confirmation of how you might be useful. Um, but I don't know. I think it's. I always was. I was always uncomfortable with you know these ideas of trying to figure out what your gift is so that you can um, then say, well, I have a gift of this, that, and the other. And, um, okay. I have the gift of giving. How do you know that? You know what I mean? Like, it's just, I think we don't always know. We just should serve serve God and serve the church and, you know, be useful. Yeah, and, and there are things where one person may be better at that thing than than someone else. You know, hopefully your pastor is, is better at preaching and teaching than, you know, than the lay people. <laughs> We, yes, we hope so. Um, and there are some things that I think um, get pointed out as spiritual gifts in a way. Okay, so something like discernment, um, where, you know, o- only certain people can be discerning. But discernment is actually something we're all called to. There may be people that are especially discerning. That That's true. But, but there are things that we are all called to. We're all called to be discerning. So I hope... I hope this was helpful in just understanding just how important the work of the Holy Spirit is in our lives in the church, um, that we're not discounting the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, we should understand well the, the work of the Holy Spirit and who the Spirit is. And we'll put some resources in the episode notes. I, I definitely recommend Michael Horton's book, Rediscovering the Holy Spirit. I found it extremely helpful. And then we've got some different articles uh, that you can read, and I'll put the uh, the catechism and confession parts about the Holy Spirit if you want to go through there. And one thing I've said before, and I'll mention it again, sometimes it's helpful to go through with the proof text um, to kind of understand what's being talked about. So, Well, I hope this was helpful, and we will see you next week.